High Point Church is a missions church. We believe that the message of the gospel, the reconciling work of Jesus, must be offered persuasively, yet not coercively, to all peoples in all nations of the earth in every generation. God makes provision for this as a means through our willingness to sacrifice as missionaries and to support the work of missions through our sacrificial generosity. We, High Point Church, do not accept that bringing the message of Christ to all people persuasively and non-coercively offends right affirmations of pluralism or tolerance. Instead, to withhold the gospel is to disengage from proper plurality into isolationism. And isolation produces the intolerance of neglect and separation. Missions is compassionate and truthful and worthy worthy of our greatest treasures, whether they are lives and years or our financial treasures that can procure for us comfort, pleasures, and security. The gospel's first principle is that God, revealed in Jesus Christ, is the most valuable thing in all creation— God is the great source of all life, beauty, goodness, truth, and light, and therefore all people are in need of it. And we are always better off, no matter what the sacrifice, for making Christ known. And we must give all people the choice of becoming blessed and better off through trusting in the redeeming Christ. And we have to trust to God and to its hearers the responsibility of faith. We are heralds bringing news. But it is news that, if believed, changes everything. This was true from the very beginning of the Bible. Last week we, we talked about Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 9, it says this, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God has commanded me, Moses said, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the— Nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. From the very first covenant, the reason for obedience and faith was meant to demonstrate that the, even the insular people of God was insular for everyone. The people of God were always to make God visible to the whole world through his effects in us and through us. We, High Point Church, we cannot save the world. Jesus did not call us or commission us to create a utopia. He did call us to spread the redeeming message throughout the world to save all who would believe and to see how people changed by that gospel might be part of remaking the world in redemptive ways. And like our Savior, we are not allowed to win people over with force. Yet, It is a truism of human life that change almost always comes through blood. Jesus chose that that blood would not be ours, but his. And so, the conquest of the gospel comes not through the sacrifice of conquering others, but by our own sacrifice and blood paid to reach them. That same gospel goes out to the nations through our blood, sweat, and tears for the good of all people and the glory of God. To the person that does not understand the gospel, this is an odd idea and a weighty and costly message. To the one who sees Jesus for who he is 
and sees the worth of the gospel for what it is, it is literally the greatest possible privilege to suffer like and with our Savior. It is the greatest privilege God could offer us in his plan to redeem his creation. We don't do it because anyone forces us. We do it out of conviction. And so, if we are going to be a people who do it out of conviction, we have to constantly confront ourselves with God's work among the nations, or we will forget. This is why we have Mission Sundays, and this is why we've decided to spread them out through the year rather than accumulate them in a single month. Today, we've invited Vince Burke to speak to us. Vince came to faith in Middleton Baptist Church, which is what became High Point later, during the ministry of Dick Sisson, who was here preaching a few weeks back. Um, He was the youth pastor of Middleton Baptist Church that became High Point Church from 1980 to 1988. Before some of you were born, I was five. Since then, he, after going to seminary, he served in the Philippines from 1992 to the present and is a pastor in the Christ Commission Fellowship Church Movement based in Manila, Philippines. Spreading throughout the country, they've spread churches throughout the country, they've planted a church in Singapore, um, are looking to Jakarta and some other places in the Pacific Rim to plant churches to spread the gospel. So um, please welcome Vince as he comes. Now, there we go. Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order, please? Um, It really is a treat to be here in Madison. We consider this home. I came to Madison in 1980, uh, right off of our honeymoon. And I got up in front of the whole church and introduced everyone. I said, this is my new wife. And it brought the house down. I didn't know what was so funny about it, but I guess I can understand now. George Walker got up and said, she's quite an improvement on his old one. Anyway, um, so it's like coming home in a, in a lot of ways here, although I feel much older all the time. I always feel a little bit funny being introduced as a missionary, whether in a group setting like this or one-on-one, because people have such weird ideas of missionaries, and in all probability, it's probably uh, for good reason. But anyway, um, I spoke in a church in Denver a couple of weeks ago, and a woman came up to me after the message, and she said, this is a compliment. This is a compliment. She put her hand out. I thought, is she going to slap me, or am I supposed to shake it? I wasn't sure, or kiss it, or whatever. And... um, She goes, when they first announced you were a missionary, I went, time for a nap. And uh, I was uh, not expecting that. So thank you very much. I thought, well, thank you. I guess that's a compliment. (laughs) I spoke in a church in Denver years ago, and a guy came up to me afterwards and said, hey, that was really good. I I thought missionaries were people who went overseas because they couldn't do anything else. (laughs) He was a lawyer. So I said, hey, you know what? Brown and black looks good on a lawyer. He said, no, what? I said, a Rottweiler. No, I didn't say that. That would not have been very Christian. But I felt it. I'll admit that. But no, seriously, it really is a delight to be here. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity. And uh, 
I'm also pleased, I asked someone earlier, um, how long do I get to preach? And I said, I hear that Pastor Nick goes 45 minutes. And she goes, oh yeah, when we're lucky. (laughs) Okay, I won't do that anymore. He already had to hear that one service. Anyway, joking only. By the way, do you appreciate your pastor? No one, no one told me to say that, but uh, uh, I just think life is not fair. Not only is he good-looking, intelligent, articulate, and funny. I mean, come on. All that's missing is a British accent, and then he'd have everything, right? I mean, it's like life is not fair. I'm just a punk from Chicago. So anyway, it's really wonderful to, to be here. Thank you. I want to show you a little video. People often ask me, what do you do in Manila? And because I work very intimately with a Filipino, I call it more of a movement than a church. Because when I started in 1995 with this church, we had about two campuses. The big one had 1,200 people. The small one, about 300. And since then, the big campus has grown to 30,000. The small one, to about 4,000. And we've planted about 20 churches all over the Philippines and are breaking out of that. And um, so I'm able to work with Filipinos to do the work of the church as opposed to doing it to Filipinos. There's a huge difference. If you can gather that, uh, then you get an idea of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And um, it's one of the most exciting things to be a part of, and it's such a great privilege. But I want to share a little video, uh, kind of a PowerPoint. Some Filipinos um, put this together about me and my wife on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. And... um, we as pastors met afterwards and decided we should do that once a month, but they didn't buy that. But anyway, it was such a blessing to see how Filipinos feel about what we do uh, being there in the Philippines. So I'll let you watch this.
discipleship group, actually still are. She calls them her, her bell sheep, and uh, um, they put that together. But it's, it's always a, a joy to hear Filipinos thank us for what we do. And uh, we think it's such a great privilege to be a part of what is happening there. Um, so God is good. We've been in the Philippines 20 years, and uh, when I go back, Lord willing, Lori and I go back mid-September, one of my roles will be to train and, and mobilize Filipinos from our movement to go to China as uh, English teachers slash coffee house directors. Uh, it's called BAM, Businesses Mission. And so we're trying to establish businesses as a framework for sharing the gospel in, in various parts of China. And uh, as well as uh, they've asked me to come back and help train pastors from around the world. We're going to be bringing them to Manila into our new facility. And, uh, and so <laughs> I just marvel at the, the, the lucky opportunities I get, and I'm looking very much forward to continuing that. Thank you so much for making that possible and for praying for us along the way. There's a table out there, and I'm on the corner, and uh, if you would like to sign on the sheet with your email, I'd be gl glad to send you our emails if you're interested in that. And take note of the flower sack stuff out there. My wife has started kind of an initiative to help the poor in Manila making flower sacks. And um, it's uh, built on the theme of restoration. God takes what people think is junk and makes something valuable out of it. That's the spiritual principle. And the flower sacks are discarded. Lori's been able to make things out of them. And through guys like Dan Otis, some of you might remember that name, who works for L.L. Bean, they're selling them. L.L. Bean has been making orders. Anthropology is looking at them. And a number of stores in Denver and other places. So it's kicked up a notch in terms of going from a cottage industry to a maybe a bona fide um, uh, livelihood for Filipinos. And so we hire um, Filipinos to make them over there and it's a salary for them. And kind of small potatoes right now, but God seems to be expanding it. So pray that that continues to develop. Uh, so that's something we do outside of our ministry or as part of our ministry. Now, I want to share with you this morning, the title of my message is Facts of Faith. And um, I want to start it by showing you a video. How many of you did not see the video of Susan Boyle singing on Britain's Got Talent. Raise your hand. Okay, good enough of you that we'll show it then. Okay, let's let's see that. It's a little off. I hope it's better than last service, but you'll have to bear with that. I still think it works. And that's just one side of me. <laughs> okay, what's the dream? I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yes.
that cheeky grin and said, I, I want to be like a lame page, everyone was laughing at you. No one is laughing now. That was stunning. An incredible performance. And I just want to say that it was a complete privilege listening to that. It was inspirational. OK, moment of truth. Here's yes or no. The biggest yes I have ever given anybody. Amanda? Yes, definitely. Susan Boyle, you can go back to the village with your head held high. It's three S's. You can watch it on YouTube to get the timing right, but I, I hope you get the point. There's a lot that can be said about that. Someone mentioned to me outside, you know, as I think of my service for the Lord, I sometimes feel like people seem to perceive Susan Boyle. And I need to remember that God doesn't feel that way about me at all. He sees me as we hear her voice. And I hope I can convince you of that as we go through the day here today. But, you know, there's a track I want to go kicking off of that. Um, what I didn't catch watching that video, and I've watched it a hundred times, until I bought her CD. And I was listening to that song in my car driving through Manila traffic. And if you know anything about Manila traffic, uh, it's horrible. It's one of the worst cities in the world for traffic. And uh, there's even a joke in Manila. A guy was driving along, he rolled down his window because he saw a buddy walking. He said, hey, you want to ride? And the guy said, no, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I tell that in Filipino audiences, they don't laugh. What's funny about that? Anyway, um, so there's lots of time to think in traffic. And as I'm listening to this song, for the first time, the words hit me. Now, it really works in the musical when it's sung. You understand the dynamic of it. But I hadn't seen the musical yet. It was years before it was made. And um, um, I, got, I began to tear up as I thought of these words. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder as they tear your hopes apart and they turn your dreams to shame. Have any of you ever felt like that? I have. And I, I started to kind of take it up with God. It's like, God, you know, sometimes life is like this. What about that? I had a dream. My life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. My life has killed the dream I dreamed. Lord, life shouldn't be like that. For the Christian. So how does it work when it gets like that? Have you ever been there? I pulled over my eyes. I teared up. I, I, I was really, and I just talked to the Lord. And I was like, Lord, in one sense, this song is right. Dreams aren't always fulfilled. After all, I didn't turn out like Hudson Taylor <laughs> or uh, David Livingston or Jim Elliott, which is, that's probably good because of how he ended. Anyway, um, maybe you know how that one ended up. Seriously, though, dreams, 
don't always come true, do they? Sometimes they're severely damaged by the realities of life. Dreams aren't always fulfilled. Sometimes they're utterly destroyed. So what do we do with that? Very interestingly, I think I found an answer shortly after that from a politician, of all things. (laughs) I joked at our church once. um, I said, I heard Jay Leno say on his show the other night that politics is Hollywood for ugly people. (laughs) I got reamed out afterwards, so I probably shouldn't have said that this morning. I might get in trouble. Um, Anyway. But the answer came through a politician, my favorite politician of all time, Winston Churchill. I love this guy, and I, I've read everything by him and about him that I can. And I'm actually reading a book right now about him, and I've discovered a couple of things I didn't know before. I love it. Here, what a character. It says he was listening to a fellow politician give a speech, and obviously he wasn't agreeing at all with what this guy was saying, so he was vigorously shaking his head. And... It was such a distraction, the speaker said, I see my right honorable friend shaking his head, he cried in exasperation. I wish to remind him that I am only expressing my own opinion. (laughs) And Churchill replied, and I wish to remind the speaker that I am only shaking my own head. (laughs) I love it. Um, There's lots more stories like that, but this is one I didn't know either. His famous speech... Um, that stirred the nation when they were in a rather hopeless position before the Nazi onslaught. He got on the radio and said these great words, you know them, we shall defend our island, whatever the case may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. After he gave this speech over the radio, delivering each line like a hammer blow, one of England's highest clergymen who was present in the studio reported that Churchill ended his speech, placed his hand over the microphone, and said to all in the room, and we shall hit them over the heads with beer bottles, which is about all we have got to work with. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's great. But he said some serious things. On May 10th, 1940, as Nazi panzer tanks were sweeping across Europe, Winston Churchill accepted his appointment as Prime Minister of Great Britain in his mid-60s. After many rough and tumble years in which he called it his political wilderness, he finally had the helm and the chance to make a real impact. By the way, the subject as we deal with it this morning, the Great Commission, We are in a war. Uh, If you name the name of Christ, you are in a war. The Christian life is not a battle or a playground. It's a battleground. And the Great Commission is not some financial kickback for missionaries. It's a statement and a declaration of war. When Jesus gave it, the, the, the hordes of hell mustered themselves to fight it at every turn. And they won't win, praise the Lord. But we need to know we're in a war. It's total, it's all out, and it's eternal. And Churchill writes at the end of his book, The Gathering Storm, these final sentences. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. Don't you like that? I said, there it is. 
When dreams get destroyed, fact remains, and facts are better than dreams. So hold to the facts, and certainly God wants us to know truth from his word, facts from his word, to lift our spirits, to lift our lives. The song of life does not have to contain and be filled only with sad lyrics. Life doesn't have to end with sad lyrics. Facts are better than dreams. There's more to it. There's another side of the coin. There's another factor in the equation. And so I'd like to share a few of these facts with you. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Facts to keep you going when your dreams turn to nightmares. Facts to keep you going when the tigers come at night to tear your dreams apart. And I want you to take this for yourself. By the way, you can't tell a pun to a kleptomaniac. You know that, right? Because they take things literally. I think I heard the drums fall over the cliff. but You know what Edgar Allan Poe said? Those most dislike puns who are least able to utter them. Ta-ta-ta. Anyway, enough of that. I want you to take these things literally, that this is for you. This is not for someone else. This is for you. God has a plan for you. Fact number one, God has a plan for you. And I want you to know that that plan incorporates and is connected to the Great Commission. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And if you know the context of these verses, this was said to the people of Israel when they were captive in Babylon because of their severe disobedience. And what a wonderful promise, a gracious promise from the Lord to wayward people like us. And this plan includes the Great Commission. Now, Jesus, um, if you read the Gospels, I think especially Matthew, it's really cool because just prior to his resurrection, he says something about, after I rise, see me in Galilee. And then a little uh, after the resurrection, uh, meet me in Galilee. And it's like four times he says, meet me in Galilee. And so I can imagine the disciples, what's going to happen in Galilee? And it was in Galilee where Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said, I want you to, 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 to teach them everything that I have taught you to obey. I want you to baptize them. I want you to go to them and make disciples. And lo, I am with you in this, because all authority is given unto me. I want you to know something. The main verb in those verses is make disciples. And all the others are modifying verbs. In going, make disciples. In teaching them to observe what I have commanded you, make disciples. In baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make disciples. I want you to know something. That's for all of us, not just the missionary. Going is secondary. Necessary, but making disciples is what it's all about. I remember Howard Hendricks speaking in seminary when I was there, and he said, don't export what you're not doing at home. If you're not making disciples here, don't take that overseas, because that's the Great Commission. And boy, he's so right. And that was such a profound, and it made such an impact on me. It's so true. 
God has a plan for the world. Make disciples. And the question is not, will God accomplish his plan? He will. The question is, will he do so with or without me or you? Amen? Now, there's three ways to really make people feel guilty in church. Talk about evangelism and browbeat them into it without telling them how and helping. Talk about missions and browbeat them into the Great Commission. And probably giving is a third one. Or prayer, prayer. No one ever prays enough. So we never witness enough, we never do enough, we never give enough, or, or whatever. That is totally not my intent. So if there's the slightest tinge of guilt that's coming from the enemy, not from me, okay? And not from the Lord, certainly. Uh, that's not the motivator, okay? So let's get that one off and out the window right away. But I still think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Lord, how can I be involved? The best thing, the, the first thing that we can do is just to say, Lord, how can I connect with what you're doing and you're excited about in the world? What's on your heart? How can I contribute to this? My time, talent, and treasures. How can I be involved in and, and align myself with this? God says, this is a hopeful thing. This is a purposeful thing. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand up against it. There's only three times I know of where Jesus talked specifically like that about work he was doing. John 17, 4, he said, I have glorified you on earth and I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And in that context, it was gathering the disciples, training them and leaving them to take over the work after he was gone. I finished the work. And on the cross, as he hung there bearing our sins in his own body, he said, it is finished. The debt is paid. The work is done. Religion says do. Christianity says done. It's finished. He finished the work. And the only unfinished work that I know of that the Lord is working on is the building of his church. And with his track record, I think we can be confident that he's going to do it. It's his work. He is the Lord of the harvest. We are his servants. Boy, that takes a lot of pressure off. But it also gives you excitement and encouragement to know how much he's with us in this. But the question is not, will he get the job done? The question is, will he do it with someone else other than me? Because he doesn't want that to be the case. He wants to use you. When I was a youth pastor, I read a quote that helped motivate us to really make a move toward going overseas, which was what God wanted us to do. That's not for everybody, trust me. But the, the statement goes like this. I went from being willing to go, but planning to stay, to willing to stay, but planning to go. And that's a cosmic shift, paradigm shift in your mind. And once I made that, it was like, all of a sudden, it was like being strapped into a roller coaster. Boom, next thing you know, we're in the Philippines. I, it was amazing. And I, I thank God for the privilege of being able to go that way. I remember when I was at Dallas Seminary, take some of the mysticism out of it, I, I, I saw a big world map on the wall, and they had pins uh, in places where all Dallas Seminary graduates had gone on to ministry. And there was an overwhelming cluster of pins. Guess where? Dallas. <laughs> and then there were some further away you went from Dallas. There were a few scattered around the world. And I thought, that's where I'm going. 
I decided to uh, go to a group of youth pastors. You know how youth pastors get together in the city, and and um, because I was a youth pastor then, and realized there were three hundred in Plano, Texas. At that time, was a city of about three hundred thousand, and I thought it just sort of stands to reason. Let's go somewhere else, and that's why we went to the Philippines. But missions is changing. My kids went to Faith Academy all their years of school, kindergarten through 12th grade. And when we first started with Faith Academy in the, in the early 90s, it was predominantly American or Western, uh, 80%. And um, there were kids from other countries, but um, you go to Faith Academy now and it's 50% Korean because South Korea is sending out lots of missionaries, really good missionaries. And so not, <laughs> we teach ESL and Everyone eats kimchi in the cafeteria, and that's one. Most of my kids' friends are Korean. Um, both of my kids were dating Koreans, and it's like praise the Lord for that. Talk about passing the baton to other places. There's a movement in China. It's called the Back to Jerusalem movement. There's a guy named Brother June who was persecuted by the church in China, and he's established a movement. He says Westerners brought the gospel east, and we're going to take it back to Jerusalem through countries where Americans may not be able to go. And they're looking to raise 100,000 missionaries in China, of all places, the underground church. I think they're going to do it. This guy made a believer out of me. He stood up and he said, when has the church been the most evangelistic in the history of the world? The most persecuted church has been the most evangelistic. And guess where you find that church today? In China. And he had the marks to prove it. 20 years in prison. He said, we're going to take the gospel back to Jerusalem. Does it give you excitement? It's not all about us, trust me. And God is going to do it. And, and not to mention Latin America, and Africa, and the things that God is doing through our brothers and sisters throughout the world. What a great privilege to be a part of all that. Things are changing. Stuart and Jill Briscoe came to the Philippines a few years ago and spoke at our church for a week. Uh, and um, I'll never forget when Jill Briscoe stood up and shared before the congregation, you know, we go to churches all around the world. That's their ministry now. He says, we've never seen a church with a dynamic like this ever. A movement like this. And what a, what a compliment for the church. And I don't think she was just, you know, making nice things to say. And, and uh, it is exciting to see what God is doing. God has a plan for you. Do you see your sphere of influence as your personal mission field? It is. You can reach out to those people that you rub shoulders with better than anybody else. And God wants to use you to do that. And I'm going to give you a homework assignment. How do you get involved with missions? How do you tell people to get involved with missions? Um, without some of the token things that sound like uh, whatever. Um, well, today, I want you to pray that God will give you someone that you can lead to Christ and disciple so that they become a functioning part of the body of Christ and eventually are making disciples themselves. And let's give it a year. If you want to pray for six months, no problem. Before you start doing anything, because you see, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And watch what God does in your heart to give you a burden for people around you. And watch what he does in their lives. They'll probably even come to you for a year. Each one, reach one. 
And if you go out and touch one life over the next 12 months and bring them to Christ, this church will double. See, but unfortunately, I think in a lot of uh, American culture, we sort of do it by proxy. We expect the pastor to do it all, or the guy on staff who does that kind of thing. And we sort of cheer them on or decry them as we feel that may be necessary. When God says, you are my disciple, I'm calling you, commanding you to make disciples. So the question is, if we're not making disciples, what are we doing? We're certainly not doing what the Lord wants. Now, again, don't let guilt be the motivator. Say, okay, God, let's do this. And start to pray that God will put someone on your heart that you can reach over the next year. God has a plan for you. Fact number two, God can still make your life work. God can still make your life work. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. I remember hearing George Verber speak at Urbana years ago. And and only the way George Verber could do it, he said, so many Christians are all twisted up in knots about whether or not they've accomplished God's plan A for their lives. He said, forget about plan A. I'm on plan M. Thank God for a long alphabet. Get up on your feet and get going. And that brought the house down. 20,000 students stood up and cheered. And I think because we're so captivated by the voice of the enemy, the, the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And he wants you to think, that's not for me. I'm second class. I've screwed up too much. I deserve to do that. Me? And the devil says, after what you've done, how dare you think you can serve God like that? After where you've been and how how little uh, you've grown? Not you. And I'll bet you some of you are hearing those voices right now. You won't know where that comes from. The pit. The accuser of the brethren. And God wants you to dismiss those things. And not for a moment believe that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What a lie that is. God has a plan for you filled with hope. And he can still make your life work for his glory. Whatever has happened. Grace. You see, Satan would take our sins and failures and and rub them in our face. But God rubs them out by his grace. And we need to lay hold of that and believe that. You know, next time you think you have an excuse as to why God cannot use you, think of these. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Sarah couldn't have babies. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. (laughs) Judah committed incest. Joseph was abused. Moses murdered. He stuttered. Tended sheep and died too young. Deborah was a woman, Gideon was afraid, Samson had long hair, Jephthah's mother was a prostitute, Hosea's wife was a prostitute, Rahab was a prostitute, David was too young, he had a nervous breakdown in an affair, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressive, Isaiah had a dirty mouth, Daniel was torched, Jonah ran away, Naomi was a widow, Job was attacked by Satan, John the Baptist ate bugs, Peter had a temper, 
John was self-righteous, the disciples fell asleep, Matthew was a a thief, Simon was fanatical, Nathaniel was cynical, Mary was a worth, Martha was a worrywart, Mary was lazy, (laughs) Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed, the little boy only had five loaves and two fish, the Samaritan woman had been sleeping around, Zacchaeus was too short, the colt that Jesus rode on was a jackass, just like some of his disciples, Simon the son of Rufus was only passing by, Paul was single, a prisoner, and a poor speaker, Philip disappeared, Mark quit, Timothy had ulcers, and Lazarus was dead. (laughs) What's your excuse? God wants to use you, he can still make your... Do you love God? Look at what Romans 8.28 says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Do you love God? Here's a litmus paper test. Are you willing to obey him? That's what Jesus says love looks like before God. Who are called according to his purpose. You are called into the family of God. You are called to make disciples as I am. What a wonderful privilege. And you know what? Where Jesus gives the command, he gives the power. The guy at the pool who couldn't walk, Jesus said, get up and walk. It's like, hello? That's impossible. But he got up and walked. And so the impossible things that Jesus tells us to do, he gives the power to do it. That's why he says, lo, I am with you. And we'll get this done. Me through you. If you'll open up yourself to that. Fact number three. God will never leave you. Or ever give up on you. God will never leave you. Or ever give up on you. Let your character be free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said... I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what man shall do to me. God will never leave you or give up on you. You know, in our church in Manila, one of our traditions is people share testimonies. And they actually do it in manuscript form so that we can keep the time right and so on. And, um, and I teased in one of our staff meetings, and I said, you know, some of these testimonies are like happy ending. I was this, and then this happened, and, and now my business is prospering, everything's wonderful, and all my kids love the Lord. And, and nothing wrong with that, okay, don't get me wrong, but I said, what about the guy that's right in the middle of the tunnel, and he's struggling? Because frankly, I can tend to identify more with that than the guy that's got all his ducks in a row and everything's working out. And, you know, all of that matters. But those kinds of things are what we need to hear. God's not through with you yet. He will never leave you or give up on you. I went to the Philippines a couple of years ago, mainly to help a Denver pastor establish a ministry initiative we're going to work on in the future to recruit Filipinos to go to China. And on the way, I decided to route myself through New York City to visit my daughter Kelly, who was in grad school at the time. And um, it didn't hit me till I was on the way. It's like, whoa, I'm going to be in New York City on 9-11 for the 10-year anniversary of the, the World Trade Center disaster. 
It wasn't like cool. It was more like what a privilege, what a what a, a incredible uh, place to be at the epicenter of this this thing, and that impacted all of us so profoundly. And so I was very excited. It, it was it was everything I dreamed it could be. It was wonderful. We got to hear the New York Philharmonic for free. Uh, benefit concert from the fourth row. We didn't get tickets till 10 minutes before because Kelly got the crazy idea to see if they were reissuing cancellations. It was like unbelievable. And the next day we went to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church and uh, marvelous. I've never heard a church sing like that place. And in the afternoon they had a speaker. Her name was Jenna and she was the last survivor pulled from the rubble of 9-11. The Brooklyn Tabernacle lost more people in that tragedy than any other church in New York. York. And so they felt it strongly. And she was the last survivor pulled from the rubble. She's quite a celebrity. She's written a book and she couldn't be in church in the morning because she was on NBC. She tours all over the world to tell her story. And um, she got up to talk and you fell in love with her right away. She's an African-American gal from Trinidad and uh, just so unassuming and normal. And, and she just won our hearts from the first sentence. And it was just such a privilege to listen to her. And she told her story. She said, I was in the 64th floor of the World Trade Center when the first plane hit. She said, you have no idea what that felt like. It was like an earthquake and a, a, a bomb. Um, we didn't know what happened. And uh, they told us to stay put. Thinking about what happened now, you can you wonder what in the world. But so we did for about an hour or however long it was till the second plane hit. And when that second plane hit, it's like we're out of here. And we began to run down the stairs. And um, I was holding my best friend's hand running down the stairs. And we made it to the 13th floor when the building collapsed on us. I never saw my friend again, she said. And she said, I woke up shortly after and I was pinned underneath a huge slab of concrete. I couldn't move anything. And the pain was excruciating. It's so bad I couldn't sleep. I couldn't black out. And so I was conscious the whole 27 hours. And she said, for the first four or five hours, I just poured my heart out to the Lord. And I confessed my sin. And I admitted that I'd not been walking with him. And I'd been wayward. And I wanted to return to him and, and walk with him again. And, and I just cried out to the Lord. And somewhere along the way, I said, God... If you'll give me another chance, I want to live for you now. I want to speak for you. I want to do something for you. I want to do it right and walk with you and fulfill your, your great commission, if you will. And, and, and she cried out like that. And she said, and Lord, if you'll let me live, show me a sign. Otherwise, just take me home now. It's too painful. She said, right about that time, oh, by the way, everything was pinned. She couldn't move anything except her hand. Her right hand was out there. She couldn't see it. Just out there somewhere. And right about that time that she prayed that, someone took her hand and said, Jenna, Jenna, it's me. My name is Paul. I'm going to be here with you. We're going to get through this. And I began to talk to Paul, and I poured out my heart to him, and, and we prayed together, and we talked. And, and uh, before long, after hour after hour after hour of this, I heard noises and saws and voices, and, and then there was light, and I was put in an ambulance and rushed to the hospital. I went through 12 surgeries, and the doctor said I'd never walk again, and look, and she skipped across the platform in high heels, and I'm walking, and oh, it's just, you could not cry, and, and you could not feel um, the power of the story. Then she started to leave the stage, and she said, as she's leaving, the pastor's wife cornered her, they whispered something together, and she came back, she went, I get to talking and I forget what I'm supposed to say. She goes, I don't know a Paul. 
I've been looking for Paul for 10 years. I haven't found him yet. You know what? I'm kind of a celebrity. Everywhere I go, I ask, Paul, are you here? I haven't found him yet. I would think by now I might have. I've written a book. I'm on TV. The last survivor pulled from the rubble of 9-11. So I've done some research because I really want to find this guy. Guess what? There was no one named Paul on my floor, the 64th floor, or the floor above or the floor below. I've investigated. There was no one named Paul on the rescue squad that pulled me out of the rubble on that day. Furthermore, there was no one named Paul within 100 yards of ground zero when they pulled me out and rescued me. Who was Paul? Then she threw in the kicker. And how did he know my name? She wrote a book, Angel in the Rubble. And she didn't say, oh, I saw an angel. But it was, she sort of left us hanging. And what's the point? God is with you. He will never leave you. He will never let you go. And when you commit yourself in whatever fashion you feel that you can to his great work, the great commission, he's all over it. He'll never let you go. And it's not up to your faithfulness. It's up to his. We visited the tribe that my wife grew up in the Philippines. Uh, It's a little island called Tara. It's way out in the boonies. It's the last piece of land before Vietnam. And the troops that would fly from Clark Air Base to Vietnam, that was the last piece of land they saw before they got to their mission. So it's way out there. It's Robinson Crusoe stuff. And I had the privilege of going to that island because the New Testament had been finished and presenting it to the people and seeing their joy. But one particular story really was such a blessing. One of the elders in the church, his name is Berto, been a believer for a long time, had kind of fallen away from the Lord and had done some stupid things. I guess there was financial problems or whatever, but he was, had to step down as a leader in the church. But unfortunately, in the perspective of some of the leaders, like that was for good. He's done. And he just walked away, thinking the same thing of himself. I'm finished. And my mother-in-law told a story. She says, you know, if you're in the rescue kind of work, there's a thing called the rescue hold. This is the rescue hold. A lot more effective than that or that. The rescue hold. And she told a story of the rescue hold. And God has us in his hand, and he won't let go. And as we cooperate with him, and as we walk with him, and we strive to obey him, um, we're, we're holding on to him. But you know, sometimes we let go, and we walk away, and we think it's over. But he never lets go. He never lets go. And boy, the lights went on. This guy thought for the first time in years, maybe I can come back to the Lord. And the leaders met separately. We didn't even know what was happening. had no idea. And they prayed about it, and they, they repented of their judgmentalism toward him, and they restored him. Oh, what a joy that was to see it work out. And you need to believe that about yourself. You're not too old. You're not too far. You're not too bad for God to use you. Fact number four, God will never forget you or your work for his name. I 
heard about a little kid who came up to the pastor after the sermon and said, Pastor, when I get big, I'm going to get a job and make a lot of money and give it to you. And the pastor said, really, that's so nice. Why? He said, well, my dad says you're the poorest preacher he's ever heard. (laughs) Aren't you glad God looks at the motive, maybe not always the delivery? Anything you do, everything you do for the Lord and his kingdom will be recorded and rewarded. Isn't it interesting that Jesus picks something as mundane as giving a cup of cold water to a little kid? I mean, who wouldn't do that? And he says, you shall surely not lose your reward. So take heart. Take courage. That which you have done for the Lord is remembered. What a wonderful thing it is. God says, I have forgotten your sins. As far as the east is from the west, they have been removed from you. And I remember them no more. But the things you do for his name, through his spirit, and for his glory, he remembers. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the things you have done for the Lord. How can I be involved in missions? I've given some hints already. Certainly one of the most important ways is to pray. It's not just anecdotal and a nice thing to say. It's true. Even Jesus said that. He said, lift up your eyes on the harvest. See the harvest fields and pray the Lord of the harvest that he will raise up laborers to go into the harvest fields of the world. Abraham Lincoln said, freedom is the last best hope of earth. I would like to suggest prayer is the last best hope of the advancement of the church. Pray. Connect with a missionary. Visit us in the Philippines. That would be really cool. We've had, I've hosted a number of groups. Ricky Sisson brought a group from Sacramento. Um, Jeff Ringenberg brought a group from Peoria, Illinois. Had a group from Dallas last July do a medical mission. And their lives were transformed. They lit up their churches when they went home. And they are so passionate about what we do because they've seen it firsthand. And and, uh, the love they now have for the Philippines is just profound. And um, it's a great way to engage I think it's a great way to obey the command. Lift up your eyes on the field. What better way than to go somewhere? Now, not everyone can do that. But uh, one of the things about the Philippines is they speak English. So you don't have to worry about the language barrier. That's why you get a Filipino whenever you call your credit card. They've got you in a call center in Manila, uh, more than likely. I talked to a girl just the other day and threw out a few Tagalog phrases. Boy, did she become helpful after that. It was wonderful. We'd love to have you visit. Those Those are ways you can be involved. But know that God answers prayer. Know that he listens. My son is six foot five, and he's been like that ever since eighth grade. And his feet have been size 15 ever since eighth grade. I don't know if I ever told you this story or not. We were home on furlough in Park Ridge, and he had invited a girl to the homecoming dance, and all he had was basketball shoes. And so I said, hey, we got to get you some nice shoes because they really deck out for this thing. Limos and tuxedos, so you at least have to have some nice shoes. So I spent a whole week looking for shoes. Five, six different stores, couldn't find any. Uh, the day of the thing, I went to two more stores, still couldn't find any. We're on our way to Target with my son and my, one of my daughters. I say, hey, this is our last chance. So I prayed out loud. This is how I prayed. Lord, please help us find some shoes that are big enough, that Vince likes, and that are cheap. <laughs> that was me. Um, <laughs> we got there. I meant it, though. And uh, looking in the shoe rack and... Nothing. He tried on a pair size 13, didn't like them. 
I couldn't tie the shoes. They were tied. I said, well, we'll fold your toes over, staple them, then you can get through the night. I, I, no, we can't do that. Just take them, leave the laces open, we'll get through the night. As we're leaving, I, I see another box. I pull it out, and I take the shoe out. I hold it up. And Vince goes, oh, those are nice. I like those. Ah, that's one. He tried them on. They fit. That's two. Awesome. So we're going to the counter with this other pair of shoes, and as I'm looking at them, they were obviously well-worn shoes. The, the heel was all ang- angled, and they were scraped up. And, and I, I stopped. I said, you know what happened, you guys? Some joker walked in here with his old shoes, took them off, put on the new ones, and walked out with a new pair of shoes. My daughter Tammy goes, Dad, how do you know that? And I said, well, I used to do that before I was a Christian. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul. <laughs> we went to the counter. I put them on the counter. And before I could even say anything, the girl goes, oh, those don't belong to us. You can have them for nothing. <laughs> God answers prayer. We laughed about it all the way home, but it wasn't mockery laughter. It was like, God cares enough about a 15-year-old and his shoes to answer in that way, so dramatically. You know what? It's like a joke from God for us. My son had a Nike contract with the basketball team he played for in the Philippines. And every month he went and picked up $600 worth of Nike gear, including about five or six pairs of shoes. And every time a, a, a basketball team would come to do basketball ministry in the Philippines, they would bring shoes. Guess who got the size 15? He had like 50 pairs of shoes. And God was like, you want shoes? You got shoes. And it's like, Lord, okay, I'm a missionary, but you're sure making a believer out of me. And uh, God answers prayer. You know, a few months ago I met with the director of our mission, and he gave me some bad news. He said, Vince... Your account is severely in the red. So much so that for July, you're only going to get what comes in. We're not going further in the red. And it was such a huge amount that I'm embarrassed even to tell you. And it was so discouraging. And I was discouraged for days. And Lord, okay, you must want me to do something else. I applied for a job as a greeter at Walmart. And they didn't want me. And so he said, I want you to send out an SOS letter. I don't like to talk about money. It sounds moochy and all that. And, um, but I did. I tried to be lighthearted about it, sent it out. And it's not the letter that does anything. Sometimes letters don't do anything. But we began to pray. It's like, okay, God, we'll see what you do. Uh, if not, I'm willing to do anything else. And I got an email from the Philippines. Vince, we're going to wire you some money. Two guys. There's a lot of money. I got an email from a church in Texas. We had an auction, and we raised $2,500 for you guys. We're going to send it in. It's like, for us? I got a letter from a girl who used to be in our youth group when I was here in Madison. Vince, we're going to send you $1,000, but our youngest daughter, who's going to college for the first time this year, saw the letter, and she said, Mom, let's send the money we saved up for my college tuition. I got a scholarship. I don't need it anymore. So we're sending $6,500. How'd you like to be on the receiving end of that? But who's the hero in that story? Those people who are making those sacrifices for the Lord. And God won't forget that. He'll remember what you do for him. David Livingston said, some serve God as if they're doing him a favor. Some as if they were backed into it. Some serve God with their whole heart. Serve him with your whole heart. He won't forget what you do 
You matter. Whether through prayer, whether through giving, sending, if you get to go yourself, and I hope you will, even for a short time, come to the Philippines, visit. God will not forget what you do for his name. That's a fact. God has a plan for you. God can still make your life work. God will never leave you or give up on you. And God will not forget what you do for his name. I rewrote the words to I dreamed a dream to fit that idea a little better. I follow him as time goes by. My hope is high and life worth living. I pray my love will never die. I know my God will be forgiving. And so I face life unafraid. I know my Father can be trusted. His is the name above all names. In serving Him, no time is wasted. When the tigers come at night, all your hopes and dreams to plunder. They can't tear your hopes apart as you walk in Jesus' name. Still I know He'll stand by me that we will live our years together. For there are facts that still must be, and I will worship him forever. It is no dream my life will be delivered from the hell I'm living. It's different now with Christ as king. He's better than the dreams I dream. May God grant you his grace to believe the facts. Let's pray. Stand with me. Heaven, how we thank you for your grace. And I just pray that everyone here in this room will have a deeper sense of it, specifically as it points them towards serving you and being your partner, your servant in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We want to honor you with our lives, Lord. We thank you that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.